Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. Now, today's guest, Lynn Constantine, is an internationally best-selling author who writes under the pen name Liv Constantine with her sister, Valerie. Their debut thriller, The Last Mrs. Parrish, was a Reese Witherspoon Book Club selection, a People Magazine Book of the Week, a Target Book Club selection, and is in development for television. Their next book, The Last Time I Saw You, will be published by HarperCollins in May. Lynn's work has appeared in 26 countries, and you can visit her website at liveconstantine.com. So, Lynn, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, congrats on the success of your nav- uh, almost said navy boffle. Uh, so your debut <laughs> novel. It's like I'm getting tongue tied. Um, but I remember when we met a while ago, and you were first working on this project, and you dreamed that one day it would find its way into print. So it certainly has. And congratulations. Thank you so much. It's been exciting. Yeah. Now, yeah. I was thinking about the the last Mrs. Parrish and how it sort of bridges different genres. Um, how would you actually describe this story? What genre would you say it it is? It's, well, it's interesting that you should say that because when we first wrote it, we thought it was women's fiction, my sister and I, and I mean we knew that it had a twist and that there were some edgy parts of it, but it wasn't until our agent read it, or when we got our agent, she read it, and she said, I really think this falls into the psychological thriller and women's fiction. So it sort of bridges both genres, um, and so that's where, you know, it ends up. So I think it, I think it's, depending on if you're a fan of either genre, I think it's, a, it's an enjoyable read. So what, what made you think women's fiction? Like, what was it about that that um, so you sort of said, hey, I think this is a good fit for that category? Well, we had always written in women's fiction. So my sister and I had have a couple other books that, um, well, Circle Dance that we wrote years and years ago, which was women's fiction. And then we had written a book prior to The Last Mrs. Parrish that ultimately we put in the drawer and didn't do anything with. And so because this, the, the story of the parish is two women, two protagonists, and one woman who is kind of gunning for the life of another woman. And because we didn't have a murder or anything in it, we didn't really think of it as thriller. We thought this is just a, this is a story of you know marriage of women. And it was my also my sister in law who read it and said, you know, that I think this is a thriller without a murder, right? <laughs> so, um, and I, I guess you know after Gone Girl, that seemed to be the advent of this new domestic war or psychological thriller, but I don't know that I had even really thought in terms of that until recent years. And of course now that's pretty much mostly what I read. And, and, and of course that's now all what we write in. Yeah. And I think it just evolved. Yeah. yeah. Now you mentioned two protagonists um, just a couple seconds ago. <laughs> and um, some people would say, Oh, a story only has one protagonist or, did you find it hard to pitch or to get people interested by by saying, "Oh, it has two, you know, main characters or two protagonists"? Or what was your perspective or your experience with that? It's funny, you know. I think that used to be the case because when we wrote years and years ago, Circle Dance, which was about two sisters, and we had hired a story doctor, and that came back and said, "You know, you have to choose one. One has to be the main character." 
And um, we didn't give it necessarily much thought in the in the writing of the last Mrs. Parrish, but I think because it's set in a part one and a part two, where you're in you're completely in one perspective in the beginning. We didn't really pitch it as that. We just gave the synopsis of what the story was about, uh-huh. and people either fell in love, you know, like they really either liked being in this sociopath's voice because you know from chapter one that Amber is not a nice person, um, <laughs> and right. I mean, we're there, we don't pull any punches there. And so um, it didn't really come to that. But I, I have noticed, you know, in reading lately a lot, it just, that seems to be more the trend where you have the alternating chapters from two different perspectives, you know. Um, so I think that's changing in, um, in people's expectations. So it didn't seem to be any sort of an obstacle for us in pitching the story. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, in my perspective, I think it's theoretically possible to have multiple you know, protagonists or main characters, but it's it's extremely rare. I think that in most cases there ends up being one that's sort of primary and the other one is maybe somewhat, you know, still a main character, but kind of secondary. And Well, I think you're right. I mean, I think yeah. in, in Parish, I mean, Daphne is really who you're rooting for, and ultimately it's, it's you know, she's the heroine or the protagonist of the story. But, you know... Amber, of course, is the hero of her own story. She thinks that she's okay. So I think she has equal time and maybe even a little bit more time in the book than Daphne. However, yeah, I mean, in the strict sense of the word, if you had to choose one, it would be Daphne would be the protagonist. So, Yeah, yeah, it is interesting. I know, I know things have changed, and you mentioned that um, it's become almost a new convention to alternate chapters uh, back and forth between different main characters. And, you know, personally, I find that um, typically if I read a book like that, there's one character I really want to spend time with and the other one I don't really want to. And I just skip mm-hmm. the chapters of the character <laughs> that I don't really want to spend time you with. You don't like. Yeah, and I don't think I'm alone. So it's it's an interesting – it's interesting for me to see that that's become more popular um, because – well, any time that a story becomes predictable um, and you say, oh, okay, this chapter is one character and then the next chapter is the next and so on, then you run the risk, I think, of losing readers. Um, and so in some cases that can happen now. Um, it's just it, had, it has to be handled deftly, I think, for it to work. I, I completely agree. And I think part of it, I mean, it depends on the book. I know when I've read books, not in not necessarily in this genre, but in more just you know, regular literature or in a, a straight thriller. Oftentimes, the one protagonist is the really bad guy, which I that's one I usually want to read more of than you know, than the other, right? Which I don't know what that says, but I think um, maybe it's it's when it's the two women um, and all, yeah. and sort of the different points of view that I that I like. I mean, it, it, if they just both have to be obviously interesting enough. Uh, to, to keep your attention. But I think sometimes when you have the two opposite things, it can be where you're like, okay, yeah, 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 let me get, let me get into the other one's perspective. But I don't know. I mean, our next book does alternate. So hopefully, hopefully people will like both yeah, the yeah. characters. Yeah. Now, um, so you mentioned uh, a minute ago that your character is a sociopath. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, when people start reading your book, why do they keep, Reading it, in other words, like if if they're like, oh, excuse me, 
I'm sorry, I'm struggling with uh, the end of a cold here, but oh. but uh, when they're reading, do they come to the place where we're like, I really just don't like this character. Why do they keep reading? What is it that you've found that really attracts readers, even if they can identify that this is not a good person? Well, I think she, even though Amber is not a good person, there are aspects of her that are relatable. Uh-huh. So we, you know, we did run the risk, and we did. If you, if I look at some of our reviews, there are there's a small percent, percentage of people who will start reading and they hate her so much that they put the book down. Uh-huh. And then you have others that say, "I'm so glad that I waited until I got into part two because you know that's when that's when everything." Then you're in Daphne's perspective, and things look different, and everything shifts. But with Amber, I think you know we're. In the last Mrs. Parish, you're in this extremely, extremely rich world, and Amber is this this woman who is coming from. It's not that she's from an abusive background or anything. She she just she just wants more, and she is looking. She's kind of on the outside looking in, and I think a lot of it strikes a chord with a lot of people, even though they're not sociopaths and they're not thinking that they want to steal someone else's life. You know, when you're looking at a woman who's got a walk-in closet bigger than some houses. And, you know, a designer purse that costs more than some car and seems to kind of take it all for granted. There's, and I think there's an everybody kind of a little bit like, yeah, well, hey, that's, you know, how come she has all of that? Or I can, some people have even related a little bit to Amber. So I think we tried our best to to draw her as a really honest character and not a cardboard cutout, you know, so you know, you, she rationalizes her thinking in her mind. So even though to you and me, it's like, no, that's, you know, that's not okay. Like, you know, she, to give an example, so she wants to push somebody out of the way in her, in the corporate world. And she begins poisoning this woman with psychotropic drugs. And then the woman thinks she's losing her mind and she retires. And she's like, you know, the woman was old. She really needs to spend more time with her grandparents. And I really, I did her a favor by that. And this is the way she thinks. So right. I think, I think a lot of people are, fascinated by that um and you know for as much as as she's a, a a hateful character i mean one of the that first thing that our agent said to us when we're reading is i love amber i mean I hate her but i love her like i couldn't get enough of her so because i don't know i think people are kind of drawn to things and people that act in ways that they would never act but it's kind of like that train wreck that you can't look away from yeah i think that's you know i think it's really interesting because a lot of writers will will or, or a lot of writing teachers i will say will say that you need a likable you know protagonist or main character however you define that or describe that um but i don't know that that's really the, true because i think instead of likable you need a character that we just want to spend time with and mm-hmm. when you create characters that are intriguing in that way how, how for whatever reason maybe it's a sociopath or is just intriguing or this character does things and says things that are so unusual that you just want to find out what the next one is going to be. I think that really draws draws people in and keeps them keeps them engaged even if someone isn't isn't totally likable. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I mean, I think it's the same reason we you know the shows on TV inside the criminal mind and all of these different things that people are, you know, flocking to and watching, which is because we want to kind of understand too why is somebody acting how can somebody do that why are they acting like what's what's the psyche behind somebody who would do these awful things that I would never do Now you mentioned also that your story has a twist now we don't want to give anything away we don't want to give any spoilers but talk to us a little bit about how you um and your sister ended up constructing 
the story mm-hmm. to lead toward this moment where kind of the rug gets pulled out from under the readers. How did you well, do that? How do you develop your twist? So in this case, the twist was the thing that we began with. And we had been, I, I had been visiting her, and she lives in Annapolis and I live in Connecticut. So I, I can't even remember what the occasion was, but it was just a social thing. And she and I were taking a walk in her neighborhood and we were talking about, we were just talking about things and talking about these women who are intentionally targeting married men with simply, you know, because of their financial position without any regard to their family or their children and just how mercenary they were. And and we started saying, what if, you know, what if this and what if that and what if things didn't turn out exactly like they thought? And then we just both looked at each other and said, that's, that's the book. And so mm-hmm. we started with a twist and then from there we wrote the story, we developed the characters and, you know, and wrote the story. So we always knew what that twist was going to be and how it was going to turn out. And then from there, you know, we went and created everything else. Yeah, that's that's interesting because that's exactly been the opposite of every book I've ever written. <laughs> like, I've never known the twist until I've been deep into writing the story. Like, I've never known how a book will end before I've I've started it. And so, yeah, so that's really interesting to hear that. So you were able to, you came up with this idea. You said this would be a great ending or whatever, and then mm-hmm. you kind of worked backwards to set up all the dominoes. Exactly. I mean, I wish I could say that was, you know, for the second book, it was the complete opposite where the killer actually changed in the third draft. So I think, I think it just depends on, you know, each story and what might work for one thing. Certainly, you know, it doesn't work for the next, but for that one, yeah, it was, yeah, that one we know. Yeah. That kind of leads up to this next idea that um, a lot of people wonder, especially with books with a a twist and you've uh, answered this a little bit, but if if writers outline or if they or if they write organically do you guys tend now it sounds like it's changed from one book to the next but mm-hmm. what's your instinct typically to outline and plot things out or to write more organically and watch the story unfold we definitely write more organically I and mean, yeah. we have a, a general sense like i said in this case even though we knew what the twist was we didn't really but we didn't know like Jackson, he just completely, you know, that I wrote him as he, as it came to me, all of the whole, that whole part. Um, and then, so, I mean, we have to know a little bit because of course we're writing together. So essentially what we do is we assign each other scenes and we say, we, we develop the, the characters in the setting and the general idea of the story. And like, we just finished a third book that, and we, we didn't know how that was going to end until we were halfway through it. So, Again, whatever we know, we know at the beginning, which could change. And then we give each other the freedom to just write. So if, even if, if I say to Valerie, okay, I'm going to write, you know, ABC, if I start to write it and the character leads me a different way, I just go ahead and, and do that. And then she reads it because we know that we're going to revise it so many times. So we just we just take all of the constraints off and we let it go. Um, and I think, yeah, you know, as as especially – that we always rewrite the first chapter because by the time we're finished, then we know the character so much better. That first chapter just is never authentic anymore, you know, because we're, we're kind of writing our way into the story. So many authors at writers' conferences will do this first page or first chapter critique where someone brings their first, 
you know, a couple pages or their first chapter, and then they'll hash through it, and the author in charge of the seminar will tell them you should change this and this and this and this. And this. I've always thought that that is not very productive. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times, similar to what you just said, the last thing that I really tweak and work on is that first chapter because only after I've gotten to know the characters do I really know what they would say and do and how they would act and think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Have you seen that, too, at, at different events you've been to where they've done this first-page critique business? I have. I mean, I, th- I think, you know, it's so hard to, to know what to listen to and what, you know, what advice to take. And I, that's, I think, one of the things that I learned maybe after three or four thriller fests, you know, because you go into one thing and people tell you this, and then you go to the next thing and it contradicts it. And I think you have to learn what works for you. But I definitely think, yeah, I, mean, I think it's better to talk maybe character and, and develop and maybe work with somebody on that than necessarily the first page, um, especially if the whole if that book hasn't been written. I mean, maybe a first sentence just to get used to craft and crafting like something that pulls somebody in. But um, yeah, I mean that that always that definitely always gets rewritten. Yeah, yeah and, and uh, characterization you just mentioned. Let's talk about that for a second. Um, what are the aspects of developing three dimensional characters? that you've sort of discovered are helpful for you as you've done your, your first couple of books here, um, working with your sister. How do you create these characters that have depth um, that was alone with? Well, we, I mean, it, it's definitely uh, an evolving thing as we're, as we're writing. So initially we, de- we talk about, you know, all the, the regular stuff of age and, you know, what they look like and, and a little bit about how they grow up. And then we try to construct a backstory for them that even though it's not going to make it into the book, but we understand whether or not they've had, you know, what kind of tragedy they may have had, what they would have, you know, what kind of were their uh, struggles growing up. So if you have somebody maybe in a prep school, is that person from a family that has money or are they in there because all of a sudden they're, you know, the parents just struck a rich, so they have the money, but they don't have, like, the know-how and the and inside information and what bothers them. So we we just try to look at, I guess, any of the things that we'd look at when you're getting to know a person, you know, what are what are the what are the things that haunt them, keep them up at night. And, and then sometimes it changes because we'll be writing something. And because, again, there's two of us writing, we, we both write everything, and we it's not like we, we don't split the characters because we have to know them all. And there are times that, one of us will write something and the other one will say, you know, I just don't think she would say that. That's really yeah. not. And, right, you know, and, you, and it just starts, it starts to evolve um, in that sense. But it's, I mean, it's hard, I think, you know, especially because you've got to get that first draft down. And, and the most freeing thing for me is knowing that, letting it just all go and knowing that this first draft is going to change so much and I don't have to worry about it. And I'm going to, you know, I mean, I might even dispense with, and, I, and we do, you know, we end up cutting chapters and, and rewriting and stuff like that. But I, I just think it's, it's like getting to know a person, you know, as as you see what they they do in different circumstances, you get to know, you know, how they would react, hopefully, you know. So. Yeah, no, I think so, too. And sometimes in my seminars on writing, I'll really bring that up, that my best friend, like, I literally don't know where he went to high school or what he named his first cat or who he dated, you know, his junior year, took to prom or something like that. But right. but I know what matters to him, what he's passionate about, what he would sacrifice his life for, all of those things. And 
So while it might be, you know, interesting, I guess, to some readers to hear all of that backstory, um, instead, I want to, the more time that I spend with him, then the more um, I realize what he's what he's really like. And um, sometimes I've given the example of, let's say that someone in a seminar, um, you know, a snake suddenly slithers out of her purse. Well, if I don't know that person, I don't know necessarily how she'll respond. I mean, maybe she'll shriek and jump on the chair. Maybe she'll reach down, pick it up and say, there you are, Louie. I mean, right, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so... Um, so it all, it, and it, it takes time. And, and so I think that sometimes this, um, exercise of really, um, writing so much of the backstory before you get to know the characters can end up being counterintuitive to developing the story. It sounds like you guys really try to respond. We do. I mean, as you said, yeah. And there are times when we've written that backstory and then we said, you know what? No, I don't know. Let's change that. That didn't happen. You know, I don't think that happened to her. She doesn't seem like like it happened. I mean, and it, it, it's funny because there are times we'll, we'll talk about this too. You don't want to sound like, you know, you're weird or your characters are talking to you or it's not a sort of, I don't know, magical thing, but in some ways it is. And I don't know where it comes from, whether it's just the subconscious or, or getting to know that. Or, I mean, I'll even sometimes dream about if I'm in the midst of writing a story, dream about the characters. Um, but it is, it does seem to, at some point that they have a voice that they want to be heard and that then they kind of have their own ideas of, you know, what their story is. Well, I think it certainly is true that our subconscious must affect us somehow. I mean, I, I, I don't know about you, but I have really vivid dreams at night, like mm-hmm. sometimes terrifying dreams and sometimes just dreams that are so intriguing that, <laughs> excuse me, I don't even want to leave them. And yes. so our imaginations... <laughs> I, 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 even our imaginations don't really go to sleep, but they actually dream up these storylines. And I, I just think it's interesting that, you know, when we sit down to write consciously, very often we try to almost separate ourselves from all of that energy. I don't know what you would call it, but right. you know, subconscious energy or whatever that might motivate us to um, to come up with ideas that our conscious mind hadn't even dreamed of or thought of. Yeah, no, I I agree. I think sometimes if you know, I've read, and I don't necessarily do this because I feel like I have too many other things to, to get to in the morning, but a lot of people say if you just go in that dream state when you first wake up, um, if you start to write, then sometimes that comes out more. I don't, I'll have to try that, like not yeah. get my coffee in. <laughs> just kind of sleepwalk my way to my office and see what no, happens. I've heard that, yeah, and I'm trying to remember. I think one artist used to do this where he had, like, he would sleep by holding a, like a, a ball, a silver ball or something. So anyway, when he would fall asleep, then it would drop and it would wake him up. And so wow. that's when he was sort of half asleep and half awake when he would reflect on his next painting and maybe get up and paint or something like that. But it, he liked to use that moment or th- that time, you know, between being fully awake or fully asleep and he would he would work in that space. And, you know, for one of my books, I interviewed a hypnotist to get information about, you know, what hypnotism was like. And, and even he said, we don't really understand hypnotism. We don't really understand the subconscious and the conscious mind and stuff. And, and he said, for instance, can you pinpoint when exactly you were asleep and then when exactly you were awake? It's like most of huh. us can't even do that. 
Like, yeah. And I think back to, you know, even this morning, I'm like, wait a minute. At what exact moment was I asleep and when was I awake? I, I, I don't know exactly unless, you know, an alarm blares in your mind and it jars you out of out of sleep. But um, interest, it's interesting stuff. And I think is. being, you know, being receptive to ideas and changing direction, regardless of where those ideas might actually come from, I think that receptivity is really vital to to the writing process. I I totally agree. Yeah. Well, tell us about working with someone and collaborating on a book. Um, if I tried to work with my brother or my sister, I have a ima- I, I can only imagine that we wouldn't stay friends for very long. But yet, you two. <laughs> have managed to shape a career out of uh, collaborating on these stories. So how, do, how does it actually work with you um, and your sister developing these stories that you work on? I mean, we have a lot of fun doing it, and we've always been very close and gotten along well. I mean, I can't, maybe we've had one argument the whole time, you know, I can remember. And I think a part of it is we have 14 years between us. We have two brothers in between. Mm-hmm. She's, she's the oldest. And so... We probably never really had that kind of sibling rivalry that a lot of kids, a lot of siblings do have. And um, so I think because, not that we're exactly alike, I mean, you know, we have a, our political views differ and that sort of thing, but we're, we have a very similar, I think, idea of right, of kind of, you know, a moral code and right and wrong. We have a very similar sense of humor. So it's, usually comes together pretty easily and we and we have a lot of like I said we have a lot of fun so we're constantly laughing and joking and you know as we're developing the stories and we've now worked together on like five five books as I said one didn't get published we've had other ones and so at this point it's it's interesting because oftentimes we'll even be trying to think of a character name and we'll say the same name at the same time right we've just Yeah. yeah It gets a little freakier, you know, or we'll email something at the exact same time with the same idea. So um, it's it's a lot of fun, and it's really helpful because the other thing that you get, because I've written solo as well, and it's so much more helpful to be able to talk the story through because well, we'll, we'll be talking and we'll be developing it, and one of us will say it like a crazy idea as a joke, uh-huh. and then we'll stop and we'll go, well, wait a minute, <laughs> actually... Like that, my, that is a great idea. So we might take something that if, if either of us were writing it individually, we probably would have gone down a certain path. But because we discuss it, it'll go two or three iterations past that, and it, it's the right thing. So, you know, that it, it really, I mean, there's so many benefits to it that I really am starting to prefer that because I'm, I'm also doing some other uh, some solo stuff, which I'll have news about later in the summer. And I, and while that's, you know, I, in one hand, it's freeing to have nobody to answer to for that. It's also difficult. Like, I'm like, wait a minute, I have nobody to talk to about. <laughs> 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 um, so, yeah, so that's that's definitely how it works. I mean, and we, we really see eye to eye on those things, and we've both gotten to a point where this, the story is paramount. So, not a, you know, we don't have egos with each other we don't there's nothing you know nobody looks at the other one and says oh, that's a stupid idea i mean it's a totally safe it's a safe relationship um and we both feel completely at ease to show each other first drafts knowing that you know it's going to change or i have no problem if i sent her something her editing it and you know vice versa and oftentimes we'll even 
I'll write something and I'll get bored with the scene and I'll say, oh, you know, will you finish this? And then she will. And so it just makes it so much better. It's kind of magic sometimes. <laughs> like here, you, you fill this in and then it comes back and it looks all great. So. Uh, I could use I could use that right? like an invisible magic writing partner who I don't really, argue yeah. with and and who always has the right things in mind. I think you're just making her up. I don't think you really write with anyone at all. I know you know that she's not on this call. So. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah. that's really interesting. So, so do you work? Um, it sounds like you kind of <clears throat> have a flexible relationship. But do you tend to write, like, a chapter and then send it to her and she edits it and then she writes the next chapter? What are the um, just kind of the mechanics of how it plays out in case other people are thinking of collaborating? Sure. No, I mean, we write at the same time. So we, we usually talk when we're in the middle of a, of a book project. We speak um, in the morning briefly and then um, give it your we'll FaceTime, actually, and we'll talk about, okay, you know, Here's what we were yesterday. This is let's work on this today. You do this, I'll do that. And even if some of the scenes might intersect, um, we'll still continue to write. And then if we have to change something later, we will. So we write whatever our our scene assigned scene is, and then we email them to each other, and then we read it, and then we FaceTime again and talk about that at like four or five in the afternoon. And then sometimes we will, I mean, we will edit each other's work, but we don't always do it going. So if I write a scene that's complete and she agrees with what what I've written, then we just leave it alone and we know we're going to go through two or three more rounds where we're going to do actual, you know, editing and looking at the words. But this last book, the third book that is unnamed, the one that we just finished, this time we is what we what I said to you, we did a lot more of writing half a scene and then sending it, and we found that we really liked that. So I think our process is it's definitely evolving with every book. Because yeah. in the past, you know what I mean? So, like, in the past, the only thing I might say, could you, I might send it to her and say, you know what, can you describe, like, this this room? I'm not really sure. I'm having a hard time with it. Or she may say, this dialogue seems a little boring. Can you punch it up? But now we actually just write and say, okay, I'm, like I said, I'm kind of bored with this here. And then the other person takes it, and and for that for the other person, it's nice because they've already got something started, right? <laughs> so it's kind of easier to finish. And then when for the person who's originally writing it, when you run out of steam, you have somebody else. So that's how we do it now. Yeah, that's great. You encourage each yeah. other, and you're able to pick up where the other one left off. It's yeah. uh, pretty impressive. I I don't think I would be able to do it. I, I know that most people wouldn't be able to put up with my writing style of the way I develop because I'm completely organic when I write. And they'd be like, well, how do you know what you're going to write next? And I'm like, well, I don't. And so, so it makes it interesting. So, I think that's great, though, because yeah. I'm like, there's some, I'm struggling with, like I said, this solar thing, which um, I'm having, I don't really know what's going to happen either. And even though I would say we were, you know, you talk about the plotter, pantser, and we call ourselves like planters, which we do both. And in this one, I'm finding I'm, I don't know. So how do you, does it keep, does it worry you when you don't know where you're going? Cause I'm, I'm having a little anxiety with that. No, it doesn't no. really worry me, but I do ask specific questions to get myself out of sticky situations. Like there are four questions that I always ask to solve plot problems when they arise. Um, so the first is is really is um, what would this character naturally do? So and then I always have them do it. 
So if I'm writing a scene or something and suddenly I don't know what this character should do, uh, well, what would this teenage girl naturally do when she breaks up with her boyfriend? Or what would this detective naturally do at a crime scene? Then I just let them do it. Okay. That's the first thing. The second is how can I make things worse? So because of sort of the narrative force of escalation, so it might be believable. I might have written something that they would naturally do, but the scene might stall out. So I'm like, well, how can I actually make things worse for the main character? What conflict or setbacks or uh, tension do I need to weave in? Um, and then the third is, how can I add a twist? In other words, how can I include something that's unexpected and yet inevitable? Right. And then, yeah, and then finally the third is, or the fourth is, um, how can I, or what, what promises have I made that I have not yet kept? And so then when I think back through either either specifically stated promises or promises by magnitude or specificity. So if I've introduced a character who's really, like, um, intriguing, and then I don't bring him back again, readers are thinking, well, why did he spend so much time on that character if he's not important to the story? So, right. so when I look at the kind of the forest at, instead of the trees, I think, okay, so based on what I've written, what are readers expecting? And... And so I want to give them what they expect or something better. That's kind of I like that. writing no, that's organically helpful. That's helpful. in a nutshell. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was it was interesting. I was um, uh, speaking at a conference in North Carolina, and I said, "All right, let's just play this out and see how this works." So um, I said, "Let's say you have a teenage girl who." Uh, her bro- boyfriend breaks up with her. So what would she naturally do? And people would say, well, she might um, change her status on Facebook, or she might eat ice cream or go shopping for some retail therapy, or she might call her friend. Or All of those are believable, right? right. And so I said, well, let's just choose one. So they're like, all right, she calls her friend. Uh, okay, okay. So then I said, all right, now I want you to write what happens next. Um, just a paragraph or a line of what happens next when she calls her friend. And remember, you have to ask what would naturally happen, what would she naturally do, how can you make things worse, and how can you add a twist. And so I gave him like two minutes, and I said, all right, anybody have any ideas? And so this one lady raised her hand. I said, well, what did you come up with? And she says, well, so she calls her friend and says, Tony just broke up with me. And her friend says, don't even lie. He's been dead for a year. Ooh. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. <laughs> like, is she going crazy? Is it a ghost? Is her friend lying? And we want to know more immediately. But, but that's the kind of moment that comes from organic writing. It isn't that you sit down and say, I'm going to plot this out and try to figure out what's going to happen. Instead, you're like, I wonder where this is going to go. And then you come up with these intriguing ideas like that. And you sort of follow them to their logical conclusion. So that's kind of the way I organically write. And and I just enjoy it because there are always surprises right around the bend. Yeah, definitely. Do you you find you have to do a lot of rounds of revision? It depends. Some scenes I do revise, um, but that tends to be because my strength is in certain types of writing and not other types like I'm really good I'm I'm pretty good with the first draft of action and dialogue but description or narration um like describing stuff and and then um 
I would say interludes between scenes when someone is traveling to another scene or something. Those take me a long time to get right. Right, right. Yeah. But the dialogue I tend to write pretty, yeah. pretty naturally. It's just so I think we all have you know these different um, qualities to our writing or or, or um, you know expertise in different areas, and then you know it does take time to get it right. I mean. A lot of authors just really feel like if they write something once or twice or edit it a couple times and it's ready to go. And very often the problem when I look at people's work early on, I'll say, is not that it's not a good idea. It's just that they haven't edited it enough. They haven't really thought about it and taken it through, you know, revisions and revisions and revisions and they don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah, nobody likes to do it, but I, yeah, but I agree. If it's important, I agree. Yeah, if you're going to write something that's really solid, you need to need to go through it. Um, so I'm interested a little bit in you uh, writing a psychopath or a sociopathic um, person. So you don't seem sociopathic at all. Not whenever we've met, but I mean, I don't really know, so it's possible. <laughs> No, but uh, but how do you climb inside the mind of someone who is, well, you know, is is unbalanced? Well, I, I guess I I find those characters the most fun to write, um, and I don't know if it's you know just reading a lot of them. I mean, I, I did do for Parish. I did do a lot of research. I mean, I I have a good friend who's a clinical psychologist. And I had coffee with her, and I would say, "Here, you know, this is especially for I won't name some of the some of the other characters in the book who were also pretty crazy." Um, I said, "Here's the way that I'm the motivation I'm thinking of for this person, and the way that they're going to behave." And and so I got some direction from her on that, and and I would send her some stuff to look at, and then I read, and I continue to read a lot of books on psychopaths, sociopaths, the brains of psychopaths, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But, I mean, I don't think it's that hard um, to write. I don't know, maybe, you know, I'm not a sociopath, but, you know, I don't know what that says about me, but I think... Even maybe my we all are, to a little maybe degree. We all are. Yeah, I mean, I think we all, I think we all have that ability. Um, and, again, understanding, so from Amber's perspective, really understanding what her what her whole motivation is and how and her inability to um really empathize which was which is you know that's the the key element i think for her where you know she truly she just really doesn't think she's doing anything that bad you know she um i mean because she's not a person who has attachments it doesn't occur to her necessarily that if she steals someone's husband that they're going to be heartbroken. You know, she's thinking, well, they're still going to end up making it, you know, with a good settlement and whatever. And she's had it for all this time and she can find something else, you know? So I just try to, to get in that mind and and it's fun too, just to be able to say things that, I mean, you know, we all like whether someone's acting in an obnoxious way and you feel like making a comment, but you bite your tongue. So when you're writing someone like they don't bite their tongue, like they just kind of say it or they think it. And so it's, it's, you know, it's a fun thing to do. Now, but I, I, mean, know, I had a writing. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go go ahead. I was just going to say when I, I had a writing instructor years ago when I had written one a, a different book and I had a really you know horrible character and I it didn't even occur to me I was the first time I had been in this group and I'm reading a scene you have to bring a scene to read and I'm reading this scene where this 
woman, in order to get back at her husband, is like cutting her baby out of her stomach, you know. And I go through, she's in a mental institution, but, you know, she's reading it. And when I finish, it's like dead silence in the room. And everyone is looking at me like, what is wrong with you? And so he starts laughing and he says, you are, you know, I don't know how somebody so nice can write characters that are so horrible. And, you know, that's, I, I don't know. I get that. Like my husband's friends will read some of the stuff and they say, you sleep with one eye open at night? Like, oh, <laughs> well, that's good. That's a good compliment, you know? Yeah. Um, now, I know that one of your specialties is really is engaging with fans through social media. Um, mm-hmm. So I wonder if you could offer any insights to other authors or storytellers who might be trying to build their platform or their social media footprint. Sure. Um, I and, and used to interact a lot on Twitter. I'm finding now, though, that Instagram is where more of my interaction time is spent. Um, and there, I've connected with a lot of readers there and a lot of bloggers. So, I mean, I think that the biggest piece of advice I can say is find a platform, whether it's Facebook or Twitter, Instagram, that you like and that you're comfortable on, and just really be genuine. So what I like about Instagram is that you're, you know, sharing, like I'll put pictures I have a, a lab and a golden retriever, and I love my dogs. And you know, so I'm always posting them on there. I'll post pictures of books that I'm reading, and you know, I like to support other authors. Um, I'll repost, you know, some of their things, and then I will obviously post sometimes, whether it's a blurb on a new book or information or giveaways. But I try really hard to respond to anybody that tags me or comments. So you know, if somebody puts a picture of the book. And, you know, they write a nice review of it. I will go and comment back to them. Or if someone uh-huh. sends me a message, I will, you know, answer. So I do. And I think that you can do that. That personal connection seems a lot easier to accomplish on Instagram. So that would be for, for now. That would be my recommendation. But, you know, for now, I, I don't know how much time. Maybe I might spend an hour, hour and a half throughout the day. But I do try to go on three or four times and, and write back to people or connect with bloggers, and they seem to appreciate it because I really appreciate, you know, the fact that people are taking the time to to put a picture of the book or to say, you know, and, and, it's, and it's fun. They'll put pictures of their dogs with the book or with, you know, all different different kinds of things. And so it's a nice break when I'm when I take a little break from writing or I can't think of the next thing. I'll then I hop on social media and do that. See now. That's that is interesting because you mentioned the word fun a couple of times, and mm-hmm. for me, social media is to fun what clowns are to funny. <laughs> so <laughs> you're not on the right. Yeah, you haven't found your right uh, platform yet. Yeah, I guess maybe not. You know, but um, but uh, so you've. You finished this first book and it's gotten really good response. And your second book is now is now done, and it comes out later this spring. I'm curious about what challenges did you face with this second project that you maybe didn't didn't see with the first one, or maybe weren't even ready for. It was well, the sophomore book. You know, everybody, our agent kept telling us, "Look, you know, everybody says it's the hardest book," and and it really was because. We had the expectations, you know, after the, the first book, and it was wonderful and we're grateful and thrilled at how well Parrish has done. But then, we, you know, we're told, okay, now you need to write a better book. <laughs> like, what? what? You know, I don't, I don't know, uh, you know how, how do we do that. So, 
the we took a lot of time with this book, and I, I can't even remember at this point how many revisions we went through. But it was it was probably the most painful book we've written to date. And by that, I don't mean that I didn't. I mean I, I love the characters and I love the story, but um, we it, we just really like we kept thinking we were finished. Like to your point earlier about needing more editing, and it wasn't that the writing necessarily needed editing. It was just there was more. De- like every time we'd think we were going to get a line edit back, we'd get another developmental edit back. <laughs> like, oh boy, you know, yeah, right. So you're expecting to be like, oh, we're just going to go through copy edits. No, and and but our editor was right. I mean, we you know it was it was like she's like this. You know, it's good, but she really really um, pushed us to take it as far as it could go. And as I said, this book, the, there, there is a murder in this book, and as a per, the murder actually changed three at three edits into it. Yeah. And, right. So, and you know, there were a couple twists that came later that we kept thinking, like they were. She was saying, we I think we need one more major twist. And at the time, um, my sister, she's fine now, but she was having a, she was having uh, some health problems. It was just complications from a surgery years ago that, and she was in Colorado in the hospital. I couldn't speak to her. And that's when I got the note that we just need one, you know, kind of one more thing. And I'm like, Oh, how, what am I going to do? I didn't want to, I didn't want to stress her out. And I couldn't talk to her yeah. and I needed, right. And I needed somebody to talk. I, so I called my sister-in-law who, who's always my first reader and I'm like, all right, you need to you need to brainstorm with me. So we talked and we talked, and then I I came up with one idea, and then I called my freelance editor. She helped me kind of take it to the next level, and then it was like all of a sudden an epiphany hit, and the final twist in the book came, and it was like yes, and that was the we needed that. I mean, it it really tied everything together, and it seemed like the most natural thing that should have been there from the beginning, but it would have never happened if our editor hadn't, you know, had done her job her, when she's amazing at her job and said, you know, we just need this one more thing. So, so from, from that standpoint, like, it feels like it was like a, you know, 18 months pregnancy instead of a nine. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so. I would say I know what that feels like, but I probably don't, but, yeah. um, but I do know what the 18 months, you know, project does feel like. So, right. That's yeah, funny. So. Um, so now, is there any specific message that you're hoping readers will take away from your books, or don't you really write them with anything like that in mind? No, we definitely do. I mean, we, we try to make sure that along with having a, a fun thrill ride, that there are other themes that we can convey with our writing. Um, and so for Parish, I think, the theme, one of the things in there is really, um, you don't, it's not to make assumptions about people, about things, how you might look at someone from the outside and be judgmental and think, you know, ABC, and it really turns out to be a completely different thing. And also the other message is sort of the grass isn't always greener, you know, and you reap what you sow. I would say those are the three things that come from Mrs. Parrish. And then in this book, the last time I saw you, deals with a lot of themes of, of female friendship um, with there's, – there's a thread of anxiety with one of the characters and um, family bonds, secrets, those, those types of things, but, um, and, and redemption and forgiveness, you know, very lightly through the book. So hopefully people will, you know, will get that. I mean, we, again, we, we love our characters and we do like, they really seem real to us. And we try to make, make it really character driven, 
but yet still be a good you know story and and a lot of action forward. But we're definitely focus more on the characters and what and what's going on between them and within them. No, that's that's interesting. Um, yeah, how, how you say you know different themes and you list them, kind of they're right on the tip of your tongue. So you've clearly thought quite a bit about those different aspects of the stories and um but uh but they don't feel i mean they're not necessarily message message or agenda driven they're just those are the themes no. in the background of the yeah. stories yeah. no and oftentimes i mean they really are an outgrowth of the characters and it isn't again it's not like we sat down and said okay we're gonna try to convey xyz it's just we we talk about it after and we go and we say oh wow you know what like this this came out of it and and because of the way that um, you know, Kate acted, or of the relationship between Kate and Blair. I think this message comes out of it. So, yeah, we, it's not at all. Um, that isn't preconceived at all. But it, it it just comes it comes out of it in the end. And, and we hope. I mean, we you know we'd like it. We'd like for there to be a deeper level, other than yeah. just you know, not that it's just. Listen, I mean, I love to read you know thrilling stuff too. And we when there's value in that too. So I don't mean to put anything down. But I think every I think every book has that. I mean, I think you can find. As, as long as the characters are well drawn in a book, you're going to find all of the different things that we all struggle with in this human condition. Yeah, I mean, I think that all stories worth reading ask big questions in the mm-hmm. end. Yeah. And that, um, you know, we read one that asks no questions or has no moral dilemmas, and it's just simply a series of events. But if they're not pivoting upon internal tension or, you know, aspects of human nature, like you said, then they're pretty remarkably forgettable. I think the right. stories that really resonate with us, uh, you know, touch us on that deeper level and have uh, what are you call, whatever themes or imagery or, or metaphor, whatever it is that you I always try to focus on questions rather than themes, but it's similar, you know, it's like mm-hmm. um, moral dilemmas and questions rather than like a message that I'm trying to get across. So it's yeah. Interesting. So do you have any closing um suggestions or input or advice for aspiring authors you've had just a just an interesting journey just the last few years your book has hit it big um what uh, what could you share with people who are saying you know what you know i, I that's where i want to be in a couple of years i want to see if i can get my book picked up or sold or whatever um i would say a few things like one thing that was was very instrumental for me was getting involved with the writer community. And for me, that happened through Thriller Fest and getting to know, like, you. I mean, I think I met you my first year there, right? And and you, at the time, all, you and other authors who have been successful are so generous and kind to talk to, like, the, the ones that are the newbies there and give encouragement. And I found that very inspiring, and it helped me to keep coming back every year and to stay on track even though at the time I might have been busy, you know, doing other things and not writing full-time. So I would say find your community, continue to work on craft, which is really important. I mean, I can I, – and find a good place to do that, you know, someone that you trust, a mentor that you trust so that your writing improves. And then really perseverance. So, you know, that I was getting tons of rejections with, you know, different things that I'm submitting as we as most writers do. And I would have, you know, people say, well, gosh, how do you, why are you, haven't you given up or how can you keep doing it? And, and for me, giving up was just never an option. I knew that I loved writing and that 
I would just keep writing the next book, you know, which was, I don't know, I'm sure a lot of people said that, but I think that one of the pieces of advice that I always remember from Thriller Fest was write the next book. And that's what I just kept doing. So I think if you really, if it's something someone really wants and they work hard at it and they don't give up, it's going to happen. You just have, you just have to keep, keep at it. Yeah. Nice community, find a community, work on that craft. Yeah. Persevere. Yeah. Keep at it. You know, so many people do either give up too early or just decide to self publish too early. Mm-hmm. Nothing against, any sort of publishing, whether it's traditional or self-publishing, but I just find that so many people kind of say, well, I think I'll just self-publish it. And it might just not be ready for publishing, and that's why it's not getting picked up. So keep working at it, persevere, and um, don't give in to the temptation to allow anything mediocre to come out of, of what you're working on. That's the way I look at it. No, I agree. I mean, and I don't think, you know, I think you can do both as well. I mean, I had, I had done a book that was self-published. I, I hired an editor and I did all of that, but I didn't stop there. Like I knew, and I think for those people who want to be self or indie published, and there are plenty of people that are doing really well with that. And if that, that's whatever your image of success looks like, that's what you need to pursue. So if traditional publishing is what you want. And even if you have self-published, but you still want the traditional deal, then continue to write another book and another book that could, you know, because I do think sometimes a book can be good, but it's just not maybe what publishers are looking for at the time. Right. Yeah. And so that can be, you know, but if someone really wants it out there, so I, I guess there's just no, there's no one path, but it, what matters is that you know what your path is and that whatever that path you're looking for, don't give up until you achieve it. Well, that's a good place to to wrap up. Good advice, and I've really enjoyed speaking with you, Lynn. Um, I have for, too. Yeah, and thanks for being on the show and for being our guest. Um, thanks to everybody for listening in. Where's the best place for people to connect with you online or to maybe see when your next book comes out or where you might be appearing at different events? So our website is liveconstantine.com because Valerie and I write under uh, L-I-V for Lynn and, and Valerie. And you can also find us on Instagram at LiveConstantine2, on Facebook LiveConstantine2, and Twitter at LiveConstantine. Excellent. Good, good. So we want people to check out both your first uh, novel, the Parish novel, but also this new one that comes out here in May. And so yeah. is there a place where they can order that on your website, or would you direct them just to um, um, another book bookseller site um i they can get it on any the last time i saw you is on and on all of the um online sites as well as on harper collins um site and it will be up on my website but we're just in the process of revamping our website so it's probably going to be a couple of weeks before that's ready um and at that point it will be ready there yeah that sounds great. Um, so, again, this is Stephen James, and you can check out my books at stephenjames.net. For more information about our guests and to check out other broadcasts, mm-hmm. click to thestoryblender.com. Special thanks goes to John Robb and Suspense Radio. Don't forget to subscribe to all of their stellar broadcasts. And always remember... The art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time.